Well, it is no secret that our modern world is increasingly interested in supernatural themes. Have you noticed? Any survey of the new shows or movies or books reveal this trend readily and abundantly. It may seem strange that our modern scientific world, in it there remains this insatiable hunger for the supernatural. We Christians are not really surprised by that, though, are we? Humanity instinctively knows that science alone is impotent to explain life. Cold, hard facts alone, bare empiricism, cannot really bring any meaning to our lives. Don't get me wrong, science is great. But the science-only approach to life can't even justify itself as a source of knowledge. There always must be a transcendent being to establish truth, to establish logic, to establish meaning to all those scientific observations we make. And that is why people search for meaning. They just search sometimes in the wrong places. St. Augustine was the one who prayed, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's so true. There is a God-given void. There's a God-given hunger in each human spirit to know what is beyond, to find fulfillment. That is, they don't realize it, to find God. There's also a devilish instinct in fallen humanity to possess power, particularly power over people. And don't say you're immune to that. I know you've stared at someone you don't like on the TV set and just wish you could get them. Power over people, to move the political process the way you want it to go. Well, there is that instinct in us to want to control what we can't control. That's why magic and the supernatural and having superpowers attract so many people to it. Astrology, witchcraft, Wicca, sorcery, necromancy. You name it, a whole list of things. Delving into powers, that appeals to fallen human flesh. Indeed, Paul labels sorcery a deed of the sinful flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. You know, with the light of the gospel being resisted so much in our land these days, the interest in the pagan arts and in occultism is swelling. Occultism is that search for knowledge, hidden knowledge, that they don't think they can find through the scientific method, they don't think they can find in traditional religions, so they turn to the spirit world to divine what will happen, what will be, what's going on in one's life. Tarot cards, the local Madame Mystic, they're all prominent these days on Main Street, USA. Back in the day, King Saul kind of found out the hard way, fell into the trap of searching the occult, going to the witch at Endor. He wanted to know what was going to happen to him in battle, and he found out. It cost him his life, judgment from a God who forbade any in Israel to consult witches. Astrology today guides many people's lives. It may seem strange to us that people will order their life by what they perceive the stars to be saying, 
It's not astronomy, which is the science. It's astrology that tries to get a message from the stars. But those of us who have been around for a while know it's nothing new. The rock and roll drug culture of the 60s and the 70s often wedded spiritism and occultism and astrology and many other isms with their music and with their drugs, all in search of that something more. In the late 1960s, there was the musical Hair. Don't tell me if you ever saw it. I don't want to know. They sang that famous song, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, expressing what their vain hope was, that there is a shift in the stars every 2,000 years or so, which brings a shift in the way humanity behaves on this planet. There are actually a growing number of people that believe that all that we experience in life is the result of a massive shift that is going on right now in the stars. We're leaving the age of Pisces and entering into the age of Aquarius, in fact, some have nailed down the date. It started on 11 11 11, 2011. As the lyrics said, when the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And people believe that now. They believe we're leaving the old structures and the old hierarchies, and we're all now empowering ourselves to believe whatever we want to believe. It's so sad that many actually think the stars guide their life. Make no mistake about it, we're not entering into a new age, but they are telling an old lie, one that's been around a long time, just packaged for modern years. Another swelling movement in the uh, 21st century is the arise of Wicca. In October of 2020, Christianity Today ran an article called A Primer on Wicca describing the upswing of interest in this with their spells and their witches, a a growing interest particularly among teenage girls, young women. Wiccans worship the great mother goddess who has been ascribed many different names in different societies. You get the name Isis or Demeter or Gaia or even in some cases Mary. Wiccans believe that nature, that is plants and rocks and planets, have a spiritual component. Casting spells is part of their religion, though they believe that all of their magic is what they call white magic. And in their practice, harmful spells are forbidden, lest they come back upon their own head threefold. Their little rule they live by is harm no one and do what you want, do what you will. Focus on a family in an article entitled The Hidden Traps of Wicca describes a girl who was heavily into it and then she encountered the very demons that she didn't realize that she was consulting and it scared her to death and it finally woke her up out of her slumber and she returned to faith in Christ, a faith that she had been taught in Sunday school as a girl and had rejected. And now this lady was warning in that very article, 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15, that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of what? Light. One of the appeals of Wicca to young girls is girl power. The article notes this, Wiccans say that throughout history they have been fighting to overcome the oppression of a male-ruled society. Today, Wiccans claim there is a goddess revival. They say women are reclaiming their power after living under male domination for too long. They call for women to usher in a new era of peace by throwing off the shackles of male-dominated monotheistic religions such as Christianity and follow the goddess again 
in all her forms, returning an ancient religion back to the land. Well, you can smell the source of that religion, spirits who would drive our young girls away from Christ. Who needs Christ when you can have your own power, when you can, by casting spells, control nature and the circumstances in your life, do whatever you want to do? No absolutes, no right or wrong. For the rebellious teen, the article calls it the perfect mix-and-match religion. But, beloved, we read in Colossians 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, right? Colossians 2.3. And in Christ you have been made complete, Colossians 2.10. If our young girls and our young men and all of us understood who Christ really is, we would never search for anything else. As we read the New Testament, we note that everywhere that the message of Christ went out and began to penetrate, everywhere it went, it encountered not not some pristine area that was ripe for evangelism, but it encountered resistance. It, It encountered foreign gods who were already entrenched in that land. It encountered magic. It encountered polytheistic paganism. It encountered many forms of darkness that had been there for centuries. They were dug in when the gospel arrived. We note, and sometimes we think evangelism must have been easy back then. Evangelism was never easy. Evangelism always had to deal with the traps Satan had set in every culture, just like we have to deal with it today. And today, for a second time, we're going to look at this this, uh, theme in Acts chapter 8. We'll start again in verse 5, read from verse 5 to verse 24, although... Uh, We'll just pick up with a few of the verses today. Acts chapter 8, if you open your Bibles there, and we'll read, um, I guess I'll start from verse 4 again, but we're dealing from verse 5 to 24. Therefore, those who had been scattered, that's from the persecution in Jerusalem, remember, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. That's where we left off last time. Verse 9. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon had met his match (laughs) and uh, he didn't know his own heart. Well, this passage tells us that God's power is real and God's power is unstoppable. The power of false religions is true, but those who worship nature cannot compare with the God we worship who made nature. This really should give us greater boldness in evangelism because we know that the gospel, according to Romans chapter 1 verse 16, is... The power of God unto what? Salvation, right? For all who believe. The gospel is the power of God. Through the gospel comes the power of God and it overcomes the powers of darkness. We're learning about the supremacy of God's power over the world's power, over the power of magic, over the power of darkness in kind of four stages. The first stage we covered last time, and that's the proclamation of God's power in verses 5 through 8 by Philip. The second we're going to do today, and that's the imitation of God's power and magic. That's verses 9 through 11. And then we'll eventually get to the superiority of God's power in verses 12 through 19, and then the wrongful seeking of God's power in verses 20 through 24. Just by way of review, in the first stage, in the proclamation of God's power, if you look back at verses 5 through 8, it was Philip whom God accentuates here as proclaiming his power, proclaiming his gospel. Philip is the one who took the initiative. Philip acts as a man's man here. He just seen his friend Stephen stoned to death, and his response was, I'm going to go preach the gospel to Samaria, and he did. And he took the initial initiative, and he went down there really as an apostolic delegate, ha- having already had the apostles' hands laid on him, and because of that, he was now able to perform true miracles. And he did it in front of the people, and they were astonished by it. The apostles had done miracles before, Jesus had done miracles before that, and now he was bringing that same power to Samaria that they might see, they might be awakened, they might listen to this message, and they might believe. Philip was an evangelist deacon. By the way, this was not Philip the apostle. We know that because the narrative kind of tells us that. It continues on from Acts chapter 6 where Stephen was introduced and Philip was introduced and then the narrative went on to talk about Stephen and then the narrative goes on to talk about Philip. So it's talking about Philip who is one of the seven. Even more so, later in Acts, his identity is nailed down because in Acts 21.8 he is called the evangelist and there it definitively, definitively calls him one of the seven. So we know... This wasn't Philip the apostle, it was Philip the evangelist, Philip the deacon. Today we look at the second stage, and that is the imitation of God's power, if you'd zero in on verses 9 through 11 there. In contrast to Philip, who is a man of God, displaying God's power, Luke now sets before the reader this guy, Simon, a sorcerer, who is displaying magical powers, God's power Magical powers, there they are. Now, we learned about Philip and all of his evangelical boldness last time. Now we're going to learn a little bit about Simon, but actually not too much is known about Simon. We know Simon was a Samaritan 
We know that before the gospel came to Samaria that Simon practiced his magic arts. In fact, he must have been the most prominent person practicing these magic arts. It says he had done it for a long time, and it says the people were astonished by him. So Simon was no novice. Simon was not merely traveling through Samaria with a bag of tricks as a huckster, bamboozling the fools. He was the real deal. There are magic tricks, and then there's real magic, and Simon practiced real magic. Actually, later, church history ascribes to Simon the sorcerer quite a negative resume. The church fathers blamed him for a lot, and how they knew this, I don't know. No one seems to be able to nail this down, but they, they speak of a heretical Gnostic sect in their day that traced their origins back to Simon Magus. Well, the connection's not certain. Historian, modern historians kind of remain unconvinced, but the, the church fathers blamed him for a lot. What we do know about Simon is that what he did in Samaria was very impressive to these Samaritans. The people of the city, whatever the city was, we're not certain which city in Samaria it was, they were mesmerized by his displays of power. They had no doubt there was something different about this man. They had no doubt there was something special about this man. He performed acts other people simply could not duplicate. Please don't miss this little insight. Because Westerners, I think, often will read about something like this in the Bible. They'll read about an ancient magician and they think, ah, the guy was just a skilled illusionist and they didn't know better. You know, he had his smoke and he had his mirrors, he had his bag of tricks and that's kind of how it was. But the text makes it quite clear that he practiced real magic. And notice he claimed to be someone great. Megas is the term. A person out of the ordinary. Someone great. Someone unlike others. Other people could not match what he was doing. He was great. Now, I guess when you claim greatness for yourself, that reveals pride, first of all, doesn't it? But when you claim greatness for yourself, you usually have to have something to back it up. You can't go around saying, I'm great, because then people are going to want to know, why do you think you're so great, right? And then you have to have something that you do, and people go, he is great. They're convinced he's great. No matter how great he was, clearly the man was ruled by pride, and he thought of himself more highly than he should have thought. You surely don't know who you actually are when you call yourself great. Because ain't none of us great. (laughs) Proud and foolish men overestimate their worth. Every man, every woman, no matter how gifted, no matter how talented, even like those college athletes right now competing for that NCAA crown, and you think, look how amazing they are, we should remember they're just a piece of the ground that God happened to breathe into to give it life and make it in his image. That's it. (laughs) You don't believe me? Just this next week, take a glance at a cemetery or a graveyard and be reminded who everybody is because some of those men once were great. Human beings very frequently swell with inflated views of themselves. Simon the sorcerer was a prime example of that arrogance. He was a man, listen, a man deceived by his own inflated view of self. Pride is deceptive. In Proverbs 8.13, it says, Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. God is talking. God hates human pride. 
By the way, God can never think too highly of himself. Did you know that? Because he is the perfect being. Whatever his thoughts of himself are, are true. When we start to think too highly of ourselves, our thoughts leave the ground and start dwelling in fantasy land until someone comes along and says, you ain't that great. And that brings us, that's actually helpful, brings us back down to earth. James 4, 6, God is opposed to who? The proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. You know what a humble person is, don't you? What is a humble person? Here's the definition of a humble person. He is lowly of mind. That's what the word humble means. It means lowliness. It means he thinks lower of himself. So there's not really a lot of people that suffer with a low opinion of themselves. We suffer with a too high of opinion of ourselves. Someone who really has a low opinion of themselves is content and happy. They're fine. They're fine reaching out to others and loving them. They're fine with other people getting credit when they don't get credit. They're really fine with it because they don't have that high of opinion of themselves. It's when we have pride and we don't get recognized, we get bothered. Philippians 2, 3, with humility of mind, lowliness of mind, regard one another as what? It doesn't say equal to yourself, does it? That's American garbage. It says others as more important than yourself. Think of others as more important than yourself. Now you'll have a humble mind and you'll be, you'll be just fine. Isaiah 2.12, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty. By the way, don't be proud of yourself. The, the Lord has a day of reckoning against the proud and the lofty. And against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. God takes delight in taking those that lift themselves up and brings him and bring them down. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 22, it slaps us, I think, this verse slaps us for constantly esteeming men. It says, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? And yet that's all that people do. In every magazine cover that there is, esteeming man, esteeming man, esteeming man. Praise God, you're in here today esteeming God, right? But listen, Satan is attracted to proud men and women. He loves to exploit proud men for his mischievous ends. Especially, listen to this, proud religious men. Mm-hmm. He loves to use them to lead others astray. Why? Because Satan is a proud religious being. He wants everyone to recognize his greatness and adore him. He wants to be worshipped. That's why you and I must always be exercising discernment. He who blasphemously boasted I will exalt myself to the heavens. I will sit on the throne of God. I will become like the Most High. Surely at some point in time, he lost touch with reality (laughs) because he didn't make the heavens and the earth and he will never be God. He doesn't understand he's but a mere creature. Do you get that? You're just a creature. Like Toy Story, you know, you are a toy. We are just dirt, ground. But Satan loves to inflate 
our views of ourselves because he has an inflated fantasy of himself. Because in his case, he's not destined for a lofty perch, but for the pit, the lake of fire. Just read Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. But when the devil's doctrine is embraced by a man or by a woman, that person becomes a prime candidate to do the work of the devil. Yes, even inside the church, using the right lingo, but puffing himself up. And because men love to exalt other men, they often fall for it. Notice that every class of society gave attention to Simon here. It was, it was not just the naive, the, the poor, uneducated masses who, who, who said, look, oh, this is a great guy here. It says from the greatest to the least. That means the rich were there fawning over him, the nobility, the educated, the elite. They were trumpeting his greatness as well. Now, people do the same today, don't they? Nothing has really changed whether it's infatuation with superheroes. Don't be too infatuated with that. Sports superstars, flashy singers and dancers treated like gods on the stage. Come on. What do you guys do during the week? Do you do that? Do you join that? This undue fascination with a mere creation is disgusting to God. We all are just flesh. We'll come to an end, including Simon, the great power of God. How humorous. But the Samaritans bought into his greatness. They concluded there was something extra powerful about this man. I have watched, as, as maybe you have, some of the, the best illusions that you can find. Illusionists are out there doing great ones. They, 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 they look like they're floating in de- defying gravity. They look like they're cut in half. You know, all these illusions that they have. A handkerchief is thrown in the air and flies out, you know, and, and, people, and people, they defy gravity and, and they, they look like they're brought back to life and all these things. Those are illusions. Admittedly, they're mystifying, but they're illusions. Yes, they're jaw-dropping, but we all want to know, how did you do that? We're trying to figure it out, right? Here's the little secret to all of them. They are all staged. (laughs) It's a show. They're all based on misdirection, where you don't see what you're supposed to, not supposed to see from their perspective. The powers of illusion... And powers of persuasion only go so far in fooling people. They're not enough to sustain someone's reputation as practicing true magic through the years in the same location. Simon claimed to embody the very power of God. Card tricks alone will not give him that reputation. There must have been some genuine show of power for someone to be actually labeled the great power of God. Now, I don't think that he's claiming to be God here. Scholars debate over what this title actually means. I don't think he's claiming to be God, but it stops short of deity. But it's still claiming something great to embody the power of God in some special way. This is the great power of God. That's still quite a claim, wouldn't you agree? But Simon was not the great power of God. That's the point of the passage. Philip was displaying the power of God. Philip wasn't even the power of God. He was just explaining or displaying the power of God. But Simon certainly was not. The power that that Simon had learned to tap into, the ones that pagan witches and sorcerers throughout the world and throughout time tap into, is the power of fallen spirits, fallen angels. Please do not discount 
the genuine power of fallen angels because we're in a so-called scientific age. Science can say nothing good or bad about the spirit world. Science cannot prove the realm of spirits one way or the other. But like good angels, by the way, Scripture clearly indicates that good angels had power over nature and could perform miracles and do things that would astonish us even today, like blinding the men of Sodom. Remember, when they came there, they just instantly blinded them. We might say that's magic. That was the power of God working through angels. Or the angel that came and stopped the mouth of the lion, I don't know what he did, whacked the the pussycat on the nose and say, you're not getting lunch today, or or dinner, I guess it was, or breakfast, or whether he just stared them down, or whether he, whatever he did, they have power over the animals. Fallen angels have been around a long time also, guys, and they are much further along in their study of nature than our scientists are today. And they have learned to manipulate nature to some degree. Obviously, we know about Satan causing a tornado that broke down Job's house. His actions within the realm of nature are not only possible but are documented in Scripture. In fact, Paul calls demons powers and authorities in Ephesians 2 and 6 and says they have have their realms of authority and they've been given power and they have a measure of power and that power is real. Yes, ultimately it all goes back to God, but they're using it wrongly and so now it's coming from an evil source, but it is genuine power. Simon had discovered that. Simon had learned to use that in a sinful pursuit He had learned occult knowledge through them. He had learned to manipulate nature through demonic forces. And Simon had wedded that source of power with some Hebrew teachings because he claimed to be the power of God, and he uses God's name. That means that whatever his religious outlook was, it was some kind of syncretistic religion. He joined certain Jewish beliefs with certain pagan magic arts, and he carved out an audience that would appreciate kind of teaching from both sides, and they listened to him, and they believed in what he was saying. Now, this idea of syncretism is not surprising either because even to the chagrin of the pure Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, some Jews and no doubt some Samaritans had engaged in beliefs outside of what they would have called the bounds of Orthodox Judaism. As an illustration, there are ruins of a 4th century synagogue that have been uncovered in the city of Tiberias in the region of Galilee. That's just to the north of Samaria a synagogue that's been uncovered. And there, there's a mosaic floor of a 4th century synagogue, and it features, of all things, a pagan zodiac wheel in the synagogue, along with, of course, images of the Torah and menorahs, all wedded together, paganism and scriptural truths brought together. And so this evidently was a fairly common thing there. They had one foot in pagan beliefs. They had one foot in biblical beliefs. They were trying to walk both sides of the fence, but you can't do that with God, can you? because he's a jealous God. Simon used syncretistic religion to seduce people into paganism. That's going on today, by the way. When churchgoers are told that you can have Christ plus Buddha, you can have Christ plus the worship of nature, that's going on now. That's not true. Our God is a jealous God. He said, you will have no other gods before me, right? So Simon was a seducer, not just a sorcerer. He was an evil man. 
and underscore it, true magic, not tricks and illusions, is evil. True magic is evil. There is no such thing as white magic because there is no such thing as white demons. All pagan magic goes hand in hand with the worship of pagan gods who supply the power of magic and there are no good gods except for the one true and living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every other so-called God is a fallen spirit being. Paul makes that so clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20. He talks about the pagan, the Gentiles, in their offering to their gods. And he writes this, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to their gods, they sacrifice to demons. And they don't even know it. That's who Allah is. He's a demon. That's who the misuse of Mary is today. A demon. That's who all the false gods of Buddhism and Hinduism, Taoism are. They're demons. They're personifying gods and they're winning converts. That's what they do. That's real. That's in our world. Magic is real. Magic is a reality of living in a fallen world, still blinded by and infested with fallen spirits. First John 5 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He has not been removed and shut in the abyss. The millennial kingdom is still coming. Listen, the Bible's a real book, and it tells us of all the ugliness of our own hearts. It also tells us the ugliness of evil powers that are in work in our world, and they are at work in our government. Things are not always as they appear. I see a beautiful sunny day outside. You're going to go out there, and you're going to hit the sun. You're going to, ah, spring has come. It's a beautiful day. There's a dark spiritual warfare going on in this planet. Don't ever be fooled otherwise. Don't be naive. Magic and sorcery is a topic that is discussed in numerous locations in the Bible because it's written to warn us of the origin of that power. Yes, I know, this is a dark topic. This is not your favorite subject in Sunday school. But it's one that we are not to be ignorant about. Part of the problem in broaching this subject is just getting past the terminology. Magic. Come on, Tom. Magic is such a thrown around word today. It can mean anything from supernatural powers to magic markers, from Puff the Magic Dragon to the Magic Man of rock and roll fame. Additionally, there's a plethora of our own words, our own vocabulary that originate from the world of magic. Abracadabra, open sesame. I'll just wave my magic wand to get my work done. Knock on wood, that likely came from the worship of Spirits and trees. Words like charm or you look so enchanting today, we say to a young lady. And yes, they did use love potions back in the day. Children are saturated with magic themes. Disney has its sorcerer's apprentice. Then there's Merlin. Of course, there's the phenom Harry Potter. But for the ancients and for a growing number in the West today, magic was and is to be taken seriously. What is magic? In the truest sense of the term, magic is the attempt to influence people or events by employing supernatural powers. Magic is the attempt to influence people or events by employing supernatural powers. Dr. Merrill Unger has written a classic book called Biblical Demonology, and he gives magic this definition. The art of 
bringing about results beyond man's power through the enlistment of supernatural agents. Then he adds this, its wicked and illegitimate nature at once appears when it is realized that the supernatural agents used are evil spirits. Evil spirits are not bad people that died and now they're haunting a house. Those people go to judgment. They are demons, fallen angels that have been permitted by God to wander this earth and do their mischief. Not all the demons. Some are locked away, but there's a class that still roam the earth today. He also acknowledges this. Sometimes, of course, magic is nothing more than shrewd imposture and cunning manipulation of natural phenomena. But more frequently, as it is encountered in ancient history and in the Bible, it embraces the activity of demons producing wonders through their knowledge of the powers of nature. They have knowledge of nature That is way ahead of what we understand. Some of the ancients would have thought the things we do with electricity would have been magic, right? And they're way more advanced than we are, and they can manipulate nature to a degree. There's an article on Crosswalk online called 10 Things Christians Need to Know About Magic. And it warns believers, magic is a counterfeit religion that offers self-guided dominion in place of God-guided service. As I mentioned, magic has traditionally been part of pagan religions and was practiced among the pagan nations. Their worship of nature and their belief in many gods, that's polytheism. Or even just the forces of nature. By the way, what is the force in all the Star Wars trilogies and whatever they're up to now? It it leads them to see their gods as part of nature. And some of their gods are not personal, they're impersonal. They're forces in nature. And so they need to appease them and then appeal to them to act on their behalf. And they develop incantations and they offer sacrifices and then they learn to give spells with certain words because their words have power as they see it. In fact, some have shown that incantations in pagan religions and magic are really a kind of a rudimentary prayer not to a personal God as we would pray, but to an impersonal force that can be harnessed and then sent out to accomplish what one wants to accomplish. In pagan religion, you don't have to bend your will to God's sovereign rule. You get to remain in control. How convenient. It's a religion where no church or no book like the Bible tells you what to believe. You can believe what you want. You can live as you want. The spirits are there to serve you. Like a cookbook, you can open up your magic book and choose what you want and experiment with it and see if it works. How American. That New Testament term magic there is magikos. Do you know that that word is actually related to to the magi who came to see baby Jesus from the east? But there the word had a positive connotation and it's translated wise men not magicians. The term originated with a priestly caste in the Median and the Persian empires. The Magi claimed to tap into the power of their gods. They would interpret dreams and omens and even signs in the heavens, the celestial bodies. They also foretold the future by the stars. They were astrologers. And that is why the Magi were watching what? A star in the sky. We've seen his star in the sky and we have come to worship. 
Notice how God can take, take control of even that. Pagans in their paganism and lead them to the truth. Isn't that amazing? After Alexander the Great conquered the Persians, that term then entered into Greek culture and from there into the Roman world. Over time, the term magician came to have more and more of an increasingly negative connotation. It came to be known even as an evil sorcerer. However, the practice of magic even predated the Persians. The Assyrians practiced it, so did the Babylonians. The Egyptians had it as even part of their training for their, their medicine. Dr. Edwin Yamuchi in the Tyndale Bulletin Journal writes this, there can be no doubt that both the Old Testament and the New Testament were born in environments permeated with magical beliefs and practices. What did God think of this? What did God think of magic? When God had his nation come into the land and the land was filled with magic and sorcery and witches and necromancy and all of that, the land of Canaan, what did God think of it? There they were on in, in the cusp of coming into the land in Deuteronomy 18.9, the second giving of the law, then the next generation because the first generation didn't believe and they died in the wilderness. And then God told them this. He said, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That was in the worship of other gods. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, seances. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Pretty much sums it up, don't you think? Exodus twenty-two eighteen flatly commands, you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Death penalty. Why? Because it's touching on the powers of wickedness. In the plagues of Egypt... It was taken for granted that the magicians in Egypt were not trafficking in tricks, but tapped into supernatural power. It's just that it wasn't God's power. They could imitate the snakes that Moses did, turn them into sticks and vice versa. They could imitate the blood in the Nile. They could even imitate the frogs flooding the land. But when they got to the creation of gnats, when Moses struck the dust of the ground, all the magicians came to an abrupt halt and they said, we cannot do this. This is the finger of God. They knew their powers. They knew the sources of their powers. They knew this power of Moses' God, the Hebrews' God, went beyond their powers. Jezebel, as part of her idol worship, practiced sorcery and practiced magic according to 2 Kings 9.22. The connection between pagan religion and magic is seen in 2 Kings 21.1 where Manasseh worshipped Baal and practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. It says he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. Listen, the practice of magic 
is totally abhorrent to the Lord that you have come to worship today. You should have nothing to do with it. I'm not trying to say that you can't have, people can't use their imagination and call their imagination magic. It depends how people are using that. But the real thinking out of and practicing magic, you should have nothing to do with that. It was an insult to God for his own people to rely on the guidance of spirits when they had, when they had an all-knowing God and they were in, in covenant with an all-powerful God and then they would, they would go to the mediums and the spiritists to find out what was going to happen to them. Isaiah 8.19 expresses this, this insult to God. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? I'm the living God, and you go to try to talk to the dead? Dear Grandpa, what's going to happen to me? Even the unbelieving, arrogant king of Babylon trusted Daniel and Daniel's friends more than their own magicians in Babylon. It says he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all of his realm. Even he could figure it out. These numbskulls don't have much power. Now, Daniel, he could tell me what's going to happen. Would you please talk to your God about this? Interpret my dreams. God's power, beloved, is greater. By forbidding magic, God was acting in love to protect his people from deception Jeremiah 27, 9, as for you, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you will not serve the king of Babylon. This was when they were about to go to war against the king of Babylon, and they were telling him all the things they wanted to hear, you're going to win the battle. For they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. Don't listen to them. Whatever message they bring to you, you can't trust it anyway. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. What are his followers going to do? They're going to lie to you. Well, that same negative view of magic was found entering into the New Testament. John in the Revelation says, those who practice magic are locked out of the kingdom of God forever and will be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8 and Revelation 22.15. In 2 Thessalonians 2, it indicates that in the last time, Satan will get an opportunity to display a full array of supernatural powers again. It says, with all power and signs and false wonders. That word false doesn't mean that they're a deception, that they're a trick. It means that there was, there was a lie that came along with a genuine display of supernatural power. So you won't be able to say, hey, because it was supernatural, we know it's from God. Dr. Robert Thomas in the Expositor's Commentary notes this, these remarkable phenomena which in the past have been used so effectively in laying a foundation for the church, that is these signs and wonders, will be redirected to purposes of deceit. They will not, not be counterfeit, but genuine supernatural feats to produce false impressions, delude people to the point of accepting the lie as the truth. We're set up for it now. People don't believe in any supernatural thing. And then when it happens, they'll say, this must be God speaking through this man and the Antichrist will have his red carpet rolled out for him. 
Everywhere Christianity went in those days, the power of God and the gospel, Romans 1.16, overcame the power of darkness and the power of magic. We see it here in Acts 8. We're going to see it again in Acts 13 with the Jewish sorcerer Elymas, whom Paul strikes blind with the power of God. We'll read it again in Acts 19 when the new converts hear about some people trying to use Jesus' name in a magical way and, and the demon enters into the body of the person and beats all of them up and leaves them naked and bruised. They hear about that and they go, uh-oh. And they go back into their house and they get all of their magic books and all of their incantations and everything they were trying to hang on to while they had faith in Christ and they brought it to the middle of the city and they did what with it? They started a big bonfire and they burned it all. Don't touch this stuff if you follow this God. They got the message. They knew they were incompatible. If you follow Christ, you don't need the powers of darkness. You are men and women who tap into the power of God, not to do our own carnal will. We don't bend God's will to ours in prayer. It's totally different, isn't it? Here I am, Lord. Use me. Send me. Strengthen me. Change me. Mold me and let your power work in this weak vessel. I want to see it work. I want to see you change lives. I want to see people be helped. Use me. I'm weak. I stumble. I fall. I'm inconsistent. Let your power be praised, not me. Colossians 1.13, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 Corinthians 2.5, our faith does not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the what? Power of God. Too many people today are like the Sadducees whom Jesus scolded them, saying to them, you do not understand the scripture or the power of God. Jesus warned the Jewish leaders who would not believe in him, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's who you serve. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul writing to a timid Timothy, and I'll say this to you in closing, if you're timid and you're lacking courage, this is Paul's exhortation, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. We have the power of God working on our behalf. We don't need anything else. Father, our faith is often weak and our discernment is often failing us. Help us to discern what is true from your word and what is false. Help us to know, Lord, what goes on around us. Help us to understand that there are supernatural powers that are not always working to our favor. Help us to be alert Help us, Father, to stick close to your word. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to fight the good fight of faith. Help us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Help us to put on a full armor that you have so abundantly equipped us with. Thank you for this warning from Scripture. And thank you that your word shows us the dark side too that we might see how bad it is. And we receive this teaching from your hand, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.